try it again. Hey, it's good to see everybody. This is one is Jeff in the band, so. All right, I'll take it anyways. Uh, our young people can head to children's worship. The rest of us, uh, we're going to spend some time worshiping the Lord and the scriptures together. Uh, before we get into that, we, we do want to do something. Uh, I, we've been trying to, over the course of the last year now, year and a half, uh, keep you sort of as in touch as we can in a brief amount of time uh, with what our thought process is as a church in terms of leadership, guidance and directions, where we're going, especially uh, when, when everything kind of hit with COVID, uh, we wanted to just make a commitment that that was going to be something that we felt was really valuable, even if it meant over-communicating information to you and plans to you, uh, because for such a long time, uh, even to this point in time, I think there is a, a little bit of an uncertainty as to what's going to come next and, and what we can do, what we can't do, what we're allowed to do, what we're not allowed to do. Uh, for a time there, that was, I mean, from day to day, week to week, it was, it was all a mystery, and it was like, are we meeting Sunday? Well, we'll see if we're allowed to, right? We'll see what that looks like and what happens. And so uh, over time, some of that is kind of settled. And so as we've moved forward, we're, we're always sort of praying about, talking together on leadership levels and looking at what the Lord would have us do as a church community going forth. And uh, as we now kind of find ourselves in the spring, as we find that the, the data and the numbers really kind of are continuing to drop, we're starting to ask ourselves forward-thinking questions and going, uh, and really, really here's the theme of the questions, is what's going to go back to what it was prior to COVID, uh, and what have we learned and grown from and found that we really like, and so we're going to kind of keep those things long-term and sort of make those adjustments and make them more permanent. And so uh, in that, we've, we've really sort of started that process, want you to continue to pray for us as we continue to try to work through those things and communicate things as we have them. Uh, I do want to tell you about one thing, though. We, we really... Uh, Around New Year's, as we sat down as a leadership team in, in our board of elders and said, hey, what do we see in 2021? Uh, one of the things that we all really felt strongly about was the idea that this year, especially as the weather kind of broke and the year sort of opened up, was going to be a year that we placed a heavy emphasis on relationships. Uh, if you've been with us for some period of time, in fact, you know that we talk consistently about the church not being defined as a building, not being defined as a time slot or a specific hour of the week. In the Bible, the word church always refers to the gathering of the believers. That's what the word ecclesia means. It means the assembly or the gathering of believers. And so the church, as it speaks biblically, is about relationships more than it's about a building or a service time. Now, praise the Lord, we have a building. Praise the Lord, we have service times. We, we found in this last year, especially, that that was really valuable and a privilege in the grace of God that we didn't maybe realize we had or we had taken for granted in the past. And so out of that, we're excited about it. However, uh, we really want to press into the emphasis on relationships in this upcoming year. And so uh, how we're going to do that will probably be an ever-evolving process. However, um, we're going to start to walk in that direction, uh, sort of juggling and balancing the, the 
COVID reality that we're still in, even though it seems like that's kind of waning, we, we want to be respectful of that. And so uh, we're starting to kind of take those steps. And so you see, Dave mentioned it at the beginning of the gathering. Uh, next week for Easter, we're going to kind of do this thing where we, we straddle uh, our two gatherings with a fellowship time. And so you want to s- come to the nine o'clock and stay a little later and grab some coffee and maybe see some people in passing. That's great. If you want to come to the 11 o'clock and get here early, I'll believe it when I see it. Nobody ever gets here early. Uh, how However, you want to, okay, that's great too, right? And you can kind of mesh in and Bill's going to laugh. Nobody else in the whole room wants to have any fun tonight. I'm just, I'm going to keep coming at you. We'll see. We'll see. All right. So uh, the second thing we're going to do, and I just, I want to put this in your minds and and we'll give you more details as we get closer to it. Uh, But we're looking at the first Sunday in May. That's May 2nd. uh, And we're going, hey, We haven't had anything that resembles a potluck in well over a year now. Uh, We're going to do an outdoor, and I know May 2nd, kind of sketchy. We're going to get a tent and see if we can do it. Uh, And if we can't, like we'll kind of hybrid some indoor-outdoor stuff. Uh, But we're going to cook outdoors. We're going to call it the Big Baptist Barbecue because we're Baptists, so we alliterate words, and so we're going with Big Baptist Barbecue. Here's, here's what we need. If you are a guy who has the skill set that I don't, which is to, uh, as Jeff says, you take a piece of protein and make it taste like a piece of candy, uh, you could volunteer for this because we'll have some grills out there. We're going to get all kinds of meats, and you cook them up, and uh, maybe you want to bring some potatoes or whatever. We'll, we'll kind of fill in those details. The food, uh, all, although I really like food, it does not matter. That's, that's not the point. The point is uh, we're going to really begin to place some emphasis on building and maintaining and growing relationships. We think it's a great thing for us to do. In fact, I was reading, let me just read this to you so you can think foundationally about this. I was reading this week. Uh, this is from 2017. This is the Surgeon General writing an article. Now, you know, like on the pack of cigarettes, I know none of you smoke cigarettes, probably never even seen a pack before. On the side, there is a big warning, says Surgeon General warning, right? The Surgeon General is somebody who is uh, in a very high position in the United States designed to tell us about risks to our health. That's what it says on the cigarettes. This is supposed to risk to your health, like that's going to stop you after you already spent $6 on the pack, whatever. Anyways, here's what he writes. When I began my tenure as Surgeon General, I didn't think that I would be talking, get this, about loneliness and emotional well-being. But when I was traveling to communities across the country, I found that loneliness was a profound issue that was affecting people of all ages and socioeconomic backgrounds. This is true in urban areas, in rural areas, in the heartland of the country, and on the coast. This is loneliness. Loneliness is the issue. He goes on to say this. When you look at the data, what's really interesting is loneliness has been, a, has been found to be associated with a reduction in lifespan. And the reduction in lifespan for loneliness is similar to that caused by sm- smoking 15 cigarettes a day. And it's a greater impact on lifespan than, get this, obesity is. So you eat all that barbecue, just make friends, you're in better shape, right? Like you, if you... You could have vegetables and friends, you'd be really good. I just, 
So if you think about how much we put into curbing tobacco use and obesity compared to how much effort and resource we put into addressing loneliness, there's no comparison. Look even deeper and you'll find loneliness associated with greater risk of heart disease, depression, anxiety, and dementia. This is not shocking news. Right? In fact, uh, if anything, this past year has emphasized, I think, the need for us as believers to really press into something that we know that it seems like the world kind of misses more and more and more and more as each calendar day turns, and that's that we are relational creatures. We're designed to be in relationship because ultimately we're designed to be in a relationship with God and that out of that it ought to transform us horizontally where we're designed to be in relationships with one another. And so in that we want to really just kind of place pressure on that and so know that over the upcoming weeks we're going we're gonna to talk about that. We're going to promote that. Uh, we're going to kind of press you to uh, that event. We'll have as, as the summer rolls in more and more things like that. You have to keep in the mindset. That's never about food, and it's really not about us putting events on the calendar. It's about us understanding that we are designed by God as relational beings, and so we're going to build and found and grow deep-rooted, disciple-oriented relationships in Christ. And so uh, just be praying for that, right? I want to kind of keep you into our mindset with it, but be praying as we continue to move on in that. All right? Sound good? Four of you now. We're warming up a little. <laughs> I told you I was going to feed you. Even if it's a month from now, that works. All right. Let's pray. We'll go into John chapter 12. Lord, thank you so much for tonight. Uh, just grateful that we can gather together with your saints in the context of your church, uh, desiring to be a people who would know you, would serve you, would follow you. And uh, as we think about this time of year, especially as we walk into Palm Sunday and Easter next week, that uh, it would just bring us to, to a greater desire, a greater love, a greater uh, hope in following you in all things, in all ways, that we would be a people who would lay down our lives, that we would be a people who would want to serve you and follow you with all that we have. Help us in it, Lord. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, if you have a Bible, you can open that to John chapter 12. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's a hardback black one on the pew in front of you. John chapter 12. If you're not sure what page that is, it's in the bulletin, uh, on the back page of the bulletin there. Uh, and so you can grab it, find it real quick. Uh, as you're turning there, let me catch you up with where we're at. This, this week, uh, tomorrow actually, signifies in the uh, Orthodox Christian calendar uh, in Palm Sunday. Now that's, that means it's the week prior to Easter Sunday that we celebrate uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so Palm Sunday historically celebrates Jesus entering into the city of Jerusalem for the final time to celebrate the Passover, which was actually about him. We'll talk about that on Friday. Uh, however, in this, uh, we have been walking since the beginning of the year through a series in the Gospel of John, uh, and we have kind of manipulated that series in such a way and, and really set out to do this, that uh, we would arrive in John chapter 12 on Palm Sunday, which just so happens to be the chapter of John that Jesus is entering into Jerusalem for the final time. And so uh, you might notice then, if you know a little bit about John's Gospel, it's 21 chapters long, and so here we are right around the halfway point, and Jesus is 
dealing with the last week of his life, his death, and his resurrection. And John's going to dedicate as much time to that week in particular as he does to all the rest of Jesus' ministry. And so uh, there's, there's kind of a disproportionate imbalance to the last week of Jesus' life as opposed to all of the rest of the things Jesus does in his ministry. Now the reason for that, we've said over the weeks, is because John wants to give us a perspective that's a little bit different than the rest of the gospel writers. His goal is that we would see clearly the identity of Jesus Christ, that we would know who Jesus is. That's the ultimate thing that he means to show us in his gospel account. He's really not all that concerned with anything except you seeing clearly who Jesus is, that Jesus is the Son of God, and in believing in this, that you would have life in his name. So seeing him, and then believing him, trusting him. And so uh, we pick up in John chapter 12, on Palm Sunday, the first week, you're going to see in just a moment why that is the case, and Jesus preparing to enter into Jerusalem for the final time. Now, let me let me give you one other piece of context so that we can get there because we've, we've moved ahead and we missed a really kind of critical account in the scripture that lands right in between last week we looked in John 10, Jesus going, I am the good shepherd and the religious leaders really kind of pushing back, they're really angry about that and he's going, no, 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 I'm the guy, you, you enter through me, I'm the door, I'm the good shepherd, there's no other way, I'm the one who takes the sheep in and out of the fold. No one's taking those sheep out of my hand. You're not getting there any other way. It's about me. And so then, John chapter 11, what happens is Jesus is hanging out with his disciples. They get word that their friend, Lazarus, really sick. And Jesus is like, that sounds bad. Let's sit for a couple days. And his disciples are kind of curious about what's going on in this. Uh, they get there, and when they arrive, after they've waited a couple days, they show up. Uh, Lazarus's sisters, who know Jesus pretty well, Mary and Martha, they're, they're distraught. Their brother has died, and they say, if you would have just been here, maybe you could have done something about it. And Jesus, paraphrasing now, just he, he comes alongside them, he weeps with them, and he goes, just watch. And then he says, roll away the stone. And you tell him to, I'm going to tell him to come out of that tomb. And they're like, they're like, I mean, this is not really appropriate at a funeral, Jesus. Like, it's been like four days. He's, he's going to smell. Right? Like, we're not, you sure? Right? And Jesus says, no, 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 do it. They roll away the stone. He says, Lazarus, come out. Lazarus just four days dead stench not I don't know maybe the stench was there who knows right he comes out though walking talking live and and there he is and so out of this here's what happens many see Lazarus and they start to connect the dots and go oh there's something to this Jesus guy Many. In fact, uh, now what has really been building for three years has culminated and gotten to a boiling point in the people who have seen Jesus as somebody who has some authority that no one else has. In fact, it's an authority even to raise the dead and to call them back to life. And so significant things happening. Uh, Jesus then is hanging out with Lazarus and Mary and Martha afterwards at the beginning of John chapter 12. And where we're going to pick up is in verse 12. Let me show you what happens. John 12 verse 12, it says this. On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast 
when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, so they're leaving Bethany where Lazarus was. They had just the day before been at a big feast, seen Lazarus, heard from him. Uh, you imagine like the dinner time conversation, like, man, I was dead, like for the better part of a week. And then I just, he said, get up, and I did. And like, here I am eating chicken, right? Like, I don't know how that happens, but there's a large crowd. They get really excited about this. The next day, Jesus goes, I'm going into Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And the crowd hears that he was coming. And so then it says this in verse 13. They took branches of palm trees, and they go out to meet him. And, he be- and they began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples didn't understand at first, but when Jesus was glorified, when they remember, then they remembered that these things were written of him, and that he had done these things to him. Now, the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to testify about him. For this reason also the people went and met him because they heard that he had performed this sign, right? So the crowds are gathered, there's excitement about it, and then uh, there's, there's one other verse in here that's really important. In verse 19 it says, So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you're not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. Now, now, as this is described in the scripture, a couple things become clear to us. First of all, there is a mounting, a building tension around Jesus and his ministry at the time. In, was that like a, I'm down and I'm really hurt and life's really bad? Or Nursery, freshly remodeled, it's beautiful, no problems, right? Like, poor little thing. All right, so, so good to know that we're okay. Back into the account, right? Here's what's happening. Mounting tension, building tension between Jesus and the, the Pharisees or the religious leaders of the day. What, what's going on? Well, Here's, here's how this happens. As John describes it, early on in Jesus' ministry, uh, the religious leaders are maybe more curious than anything. Uh, they're, they're hesitant, and they're, they're very insecure, right? Because the religious leaders are just that. They're leaders. They hold some power. They hold some authority. They hold some earthly clout. And anybody who might threaten that authority is not going to be somebody who's well-received to them. However, uh, they were very used to and excited about the idea of taking somebody who was promising among the people and manipulating them to be somebody in their camp, right? And so in John 2, Jesus, for example, he goes into Jerusalem for the first time. He drives out money changers. He overturns tables. He says, this is not going to be the way that we're treating the temple. And rather than respond in anger and rage right away, the religious leaders at that time, they go, hey, what authority do you do? Show us a sign of your authority to do these things. And so what they're, what they're actually looking for is, hey, why don't you do a trick and show us that you have some abilities and maybe we can make some type of deal to get uh, this as a way to really extend 
our power, our authority. In fact, the very next day, Nicodemus, one of the religious leaders, a member of the Sanhedrin, comes and he goes, hey, I know you're a teacher sent from God. Tell us what we need to do. Jesus, however, never obliges, never plays the game as they would have it. Instead, he's going to look at Nicodemus and go, hey, you've got to be born again. Man, you, there's nothing you can do in your religious ability. They look at him and go, what authority do you have? He says, I'm not, I'm not going to perform signs for you to show you my authority. In fact, as the people are excited about him, it says he's not entrusting himself to them because he knows what is in man. And then not only that, as time goes on, this sort of tension begins to build and the relationship begins to turn. In fact, in John chapter 5, we looked at an interaction specifically where this uh, starts to reveal itself. Jesus heals a man who hasn't walked for years and years and years. And so uh, this guy picks up his pallet according to Jesus's command and begins to walk and get excited and is running around. And the, and the straw pallet that he is sitting on no longer means much of anything to him because he's got legs again. And the religious leaders look at it and they go, whoa, whoa, whoa. who did that for you on the Sabbath? You can't work on the Sabbath. That's breaking the rules. And Jesus looks at them and doubles down on them. Doesn't go, hey, I, I didn't quite break the Sabbath. Like, I'm healing a guy. Like, can we just maybe think logically about what we're doing and what the Lord might want here? He doesn't. In fact, he goes, listen, my father, that one, he works on the Sabbath and so do I. And it says in John chapter 5 that from there, the light kind of switches a little bit. Uh, in 5.18 it says this, For this reason, therefore, the Jews, the leaders, they're seeking to kill him all the more. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but also he was calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. And so now there's this kind of tension. Now, what happens is this tension begins to build but Jesus, up until this point, has, has really kind of eluded and avoided these religious leaders uh, so that he could allow for time to pass in him to do his ministry. So uh, in John chapter 7, verse 1, it said, After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. So we get a little while later in his ministry, and it says Jesus spending most of his time up far into the north in the land of Galilee because in Judea, where the Jews had jurisdiction, they're out to get him. In, in chapter 8, uh, he's actually back in Jerusalem again, comes down for feasts most often. Uh, while he's down there, he looks at them. They have this really tense interaction. We looked at a good part of it. Uh, he says, uh, listen, you are not of Abraham. In fact, you're from your father, the devil, which is a pretty harsh word for a religious leader. And then he claps that off. He says, before Abraham was, I am. Again, making himself equal with God. And the very next verse, it says, therefore, the Jews, they picked up stones to throw at him. But listen to this. But Jesus hid himself, and he went out of the temple. Same thing happens in John chapter 10. It says the Jews, again, pick up stones to throw at him after this whole good shepherd idea. And he says, by the way, you ain't getting in in your, your own abilities and your own works. You're like thieves and robbers. You're not walking into the sheepfold as you don't believe in me, the good shepherd. And then on this, it says, therefore, they were seeking again to seize him, and he, Jesus, he eluded their grasp, and he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing, and he was staying there. So, so here's, here's the thing. The tension is mounting, 
But uh, as this comes, and they look and go, listen, the whole world has gone after him. They speak in one of the rare situations, uh, dead, accurate truth. The world was going after. This is why the tension is mounting. In fact, look at the next couple of verses. John chapter 12, verse 20, it says this. Now, there were some Greeks or some Gentiles among those who were going up to worship at the feast. And then these, they came to Philip, who was from Bethesda of Galilee, and they began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And so Philip came and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. And so uh, even the Greeks, even the Gentiles now, have heard about this Jesus. They're excited about this Jesus, and they want to see him. And so really what they've said has come true. The whole world is going after Jesus. The, the very chapter before, it said the chief priests and Pharisees had convened a council. This is John 11, verse 47. And they're saying, what are we doing? For this man's performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our, our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest of that year, said to them, You all know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Again, they, they have no idea what they're saying, but true prophetic words. Here's the tension. Religious leaders who, who have this kind of semi-independent land that Rome has stayed mostly out of so that they can sort of run it so long as they pay their taxes. And, and the mass group of Jewish people are quite unhappy about the oppressive Roman rule. However, a few religious leaders who are thriving in this don't want to see anything changed. And Jesus comes in, and the tension is, this guy could upset everything. And so, so it culminates with the high priest going, listen, it's better to kill one man than to see the whole nation changed. This one man will die for our sakes so that we will let things continue on. So mounting tension because along with it is a mounting expectation, right? He, he just calls somebody out of the grave. There's exciting things happening. And so out of this, the whole world going after him, the people as a whole are so excited about Jesus that they're taking, this is why we call it Palm Sunday, they're taking palm branches and they're laying it down on the road in front of him to designate him as a king of Israel because he wouldn't walk on the dusty ground. He's too good for that. And so they lay down their coats and they lay down palm branches and they say, this is it, Hosanna. That means the Lord saves. Blessed is he who comes. In the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel, even when he's going to go to the cross, this is the accusation that Jesus is the King of the Jews. The expectation was this is the guy. This is him. This is the King. He's coming and he's going to fix things. Now, here's, here's the problem with this, right? We have wildly stupid expectations of God frequently. Do we not? Come on. 2,000 years ago, this wasn't any different. In, in fact, um, so, so Whitney's 
out of town for a couple days. She, she went to a conference for a couple days this week. And so uh, I got like three, almost three full days, uh, which is, I know it's not an accomplishment, but like I feel good about it. Uh, with all three of my kids, like I don't babysit, they're my kids, parenting, right? Uh, by myself. And so uh, we survived. We ate enough meals. Everybody's, everybody's good, right? We probably ate more candy than we should have. However, uh, all in all, pretty good time. Now, the, the night before Whitney leaves, in fact, the three days before Whitney leaves, Josiah, my youngest, who's six years old, is constantly asking her, Mom, when are you going to leave? Mom, when are you going to leave? Right? Like, that's, that's not like the most endearing thing before you get ready to go on a trip. It's like, hey, are you going to get out of here tomorrow or what? So finally, she's like, Josiah, why do you want me to leave so bad? He goes, well, because I want to eat those noodles that dad cooks. And like, so I'm talking like pre-packaged tortellini. All you have to do is boil the water. You dump them in there. In two minutes, they're ready. You put the marinara sauce on them. That's dinner. It's wonderful. I'm a big fan of it. Uh, not exactly from scratch, okay? And so uh, he's looking at those in the fridge and going, Mom, I just want you to go because in his mind, his expectation is, I'm going to get these, right? And, and so what happened was, like late day one, uh, after those new, I mean, that was, that was like lunch the first day, right? And then some things start to change, right? Uh, because what he starts to realize is maybe my expectations don't match reality, right? Maybe what I have built up in my mind that was going to be so great is actually not what's about to happen over the next three days. And maybe, like, mom is pretty important in this whole, uh, you know, partnership thing here. Uh, she's the one who makes all the food. We're having frozen pizzas and noodles every single day. It's starting to get old, right? And so out of this, here's, here's what's going to happen. The expectations of Jesus and the reality of Jesus aren't going to match, and the people are going to start to rebel against it. In fact, uh, frequently... In, up until this point, actually, there's been the expectation that Jesus would become the king of Israel before. Uh, just a few chapters ago, in John chapter 6, we looked at Jesus feeding 5,000 people. And when he does, it says they're so excited about it that they want to make him king. Now what happens then is Jesus leaves. He goes up to the side of a mountain. Later that night, he walks across the sea on top of the water just so that he can get away from the crowd because it's not time for him to be king yet. However, this time he does something different. This time, it says as Jesus is coming in, they're taking the palm branches, they're putting him down, they're shouting Hosanna, and Jesus, this is verse 14, it says finds a young donkey and he sits on it. Now that, that might not mean anything to you at first glance, except here's, here's the deal. Jesus never had a donkey before when he walked into Jerusalem. He just walked. What's different? In fact, the other gospel writers tell us Jesus doesn't just find this donkey himself. He goes and tells the disciples to find it. In fact, he goes, hey, by the way, uh, why don't you go? You're going to go to so-and-so's house. You're going to see this donkey. He's going to be tied up. You're going to take him. The owner's going to come out and go, why are you stealing my donkey? He's gonna, you're going to say to him, the Lord has need of it. The guy's going to go, oh, yeah, that sounds good. Okay. And then you're going to take it. That's exactly what happens. Jesus, like, working out his in control of all things narrative, does so because years earlier, hundreds of years earlier, a prophet named Zechariah wrote this. 
Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. And so Jesus, rather than kind of avoiding this idea of Jesus, king of Israel, he just presses in and says, yeah, here I am. Here I am. What's changed? Well, go down a few verses and look with me. Here's, here's what happens. Remember those, those Greeks are coming, and even they want to see Jesus. Hey, let's, let's see who this is. Jesus says this in verse 23, when he answers Philip and Andrew who say, hey, can these Greek people come see you? We, we never actually find out. However, the answer that Jesus gives is so, so fascinating, so valuable for us. It says this, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Here's, here's what's changed. It's time. It's time. Here, here's the thing that's so fascinating about Jesus. There's this kind of like narrative and critical scholarship that Jesus is like pretty good, kind of loving, socially just, moral teacher who just walked around and tried to reform the society and was really being a good guy. And then because he crossed paths with some bad Jewish leaders and some Romans who were really evil, that they killed him. And that was how it worked out. Bummer. We should probably try to follow his teachings, though. That is, that's not right, okay? It's not right. Here's, here's what's happened. From start to finish, Jesus has been in control of his destiny and his situation always. Every part of it. He, he's had ultimate control. Last, last week we said he looks and says, listen, I have the authority to lay down my life and I do it on my own initiative. No, no one else is taking this from me. I'm going to give it, and I'm going to give it when I say. In fact, when he says the hour has come, this is a common theme of Jesus throughout the ministry. We looked uh, weeks and weeks ago in John chapter 2. Jesus' very first miracle is at a wedding in Cana, and his mom comes to him. Remember this? And she goes, hey, you know, the wedding's going really good, but they're running out of wine, and you got to do something about this. And you know what he says? My hour has not yet come. He knows when it's going to be. In fact, a couple chapters later, he's sitting down with a woman at a well in Samaria. And he looks at her and he says, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Will you worship the Father? Uh, in fact, he says, an hour is coming when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. He's He's coming. In fact, uh, then in John chapter 5, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is that he has arrived, and he knows when this is going to be, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. John chapter 7, it says this, They were seeking to seize him, yet no man laid his hand on Jesus because of this, because his hour had not yet come. In John chapter 8, these words he spoke in the treasury, in the temple. As he taught in the temple, no one seized him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. And now here he is in John chapter 12, and this is his response. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. It is time. Here's, here's what ought to be so encouraging about this for you and I. 
We serve a God who is sovereign and in control of all things. And, and so we don't need to trust in ourselves. You trust in him. You, you trust in the one who came and is over it all. And that, that ought to be massively encouraging and good news to us. You want to know why? Because, because we're dumb. You get like a point there. The rest of them just, no, you know. Here's, no, here's, here's what I'm saying. My, the last three days, my six-year-old has, has asked me time and time and time and time again to do things, and the vast majority of them are not good for him. Right? Like, like if we put him in charge, first of all, a day would consist of 19 to 21 hours of video games, right? We just, we'd be playing Super Nintendo Donkey Kong for 19 hours. We wouldn't take a break to go to the bathroom. We'd just pee our pants. We'd be sad about it. We'd go change our pants and get back to the game. That's frequently what happens in my house. We would not eat regular food. We'd have Skittles that Carol got him all day. Can I have Skittles? Can I have Skittles? Can I have Skittles? Can I have more Skittles? Because... That helps me play Donkey Kong, just jumping up and down, bouncing, having a good time, right? We would not sleep because who needs sleep? We just cry instead for hours on end, right? That would be the mentality because in his six-year-old finite mind, that is what is best, right? And so, so if the gap, and we know this, right, if the gap between six and 30-something is that wide, and I'm, listen, I'm done with you then how wide is the gap between you and an infinite God? Can we just recognize that maybe, maybe he knows way more than us? I mean, we're so limited in time and scope and ability. And, and even if by the world's standards you're smart, right? You all are here right now. You have no idea what's happened on the other side of town, let alone the other side of the world, let alone all of human history or what's coming tomorrow. And he knows all of that. And not only does he know it, he's decided what he's going to do in that. My hour has come. It's time for me to be glorified. We trust in a God who laid down his life because he knows. And it's, it's so comforting that you can trust him instead of trusting yourself. It, and so, so what does that look like? Let's finish with this. How do, we, how do we see this play out in our lives? Well, watch what Jesus says. Here's, here's what we ought to do. Verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies... It bears much fruit. This is the uh, very small analogy that Jesus is going to give of himself going to the cross. He says, listen, it's not until I fall into the ground and it's not until the Son of Man is lifted up as I die, it will bear much fruit. 
Namely, you and I, we are the fruit of Jesus' death and resurrection for our salvation, for our eternal life. He goes on to say it this way. Listen, three, three things he's going to note and, and three things that it's going to result in. All right, so here's the first one. He who loves his life, he who, he who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. Here's, here's what you're meant to do. You believe the gospel and you will be saved. That's verse 24. And then uh, you are willing to lose your life, this earthly life, this fleshly life, this sinful life, this life that we're not meant to cling to anyways, and you will gain eternal life. That When you see Jesus accurately, it will change your priorities. When you see Jesus accurately, you will start to see that there are more important things than whatever this life has focused you on to chase after. That there are eternal things at stake keeps going. Look at this. He says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. That's a, that's a rough call to follow Jesus. In fact, in Luke, uh, Jesus is going to say that following him means denying yourself, picking up your cross daily and following him. Uh, he's going to say, if you put your hand to the plow and you're, look backing, you're looking back, you're not fit to be his disciple. That following him was a call of self-abandonment. It was a call of going all in and being about him more than anything else. And yet, look at what he says. If you will follow me where I am, there my servant will be also. You follow Jesus and you're going to end up where Jesus is. Praise the Lord. Now, Now look at the last one. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Be honored by the Father. You want to hear the words, good, well done, good and faithful servant? You serve Christ. Here's the resounding call of the gospel. Jesus knows in every intention of doing what he said he was going to do. He did it exactly the way he said he was going to do it, and he did it in the exact manner and time frame that was right according to what he said. And he did so, so that you and I might stop clutching to our own life, and you'd stop holding on so tightly to thinking that you're in control of anything, and you would give it to him. Take my life. I want to know you. I want to serve you. I want to follow you. Because because then I'm going to have eternal life. And I'm going to be where you are. And the Father is going to honor me. That's what we have to be about. Pray with me before we sing one last song. Father. I think back some almost 2,000 years ago to crowds of people. Tension, expectations, excitement. And then, and then you saying this is exactly how it's going to be done. 
Forget the expectations. Forget the tensions. Believe me. I just, I pray, Lord, that, that we would be a people who believe in you. That we would want to serve you and follow you with our lives. That you would let us hate this world, hate this life, this idea of our flesh and our sin and our allures and desires that lead us away from you, that we would just walk the other way, Lord, toward you, so that we might know where, where we go will be with you. We know that we can't do that in our power, and yet you've, you've given us a helper, and so, so we depend on it, depend on your spirit to lead us pray that you would lead us in the paths of truth and righteousness. Help us, Lord. Pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Hey, why don't you stand? We'll sing one more song together tonight.